0: Um, Relationships, all of them, have the potential for conflict. Uh, And as Christians, Jesus is in the Gospels very clear about certain things about how we should approach relationships as his followers. Um, And so we have looked at the call to love. Um, Jesus kind of makes primary this command to love God and then to love other people and how that should really be our guiding focus at all times and in all situations and for all relationships. Um, We've looked at the Call to forgive others um, that's central to any relationship being successful and particularly distinctive of Christian relationships uh, as we forgive like we have been forgiven and, and we're able to offer unlimited forgiveness, not seven times, but seven and seven times and on and on and on. Um, and we talked about how we're called to focus not be distracted, right? So often we, we, we let other things come before relationships with people. Um, and so we damage relationships because we care too much about an agenda or, or, or another issue gets in the way or um, we, we just get hungry and tired and don't even notice it and before we know it you know we've damaged a relationship that's important to us um, and so we'll wrap up the series this morning um, by talking about psychopaths okay um, you know that's uh, I think the appropriate place to end if you know me you know that I like to read a lot and, and I like to read lots of different things and uh, about a year ago I found this uh, at the bookstore called The Psychopath Test, A Journey Through the Madness Industry. Uh, And of course, I bought it, as one does, um, which I think I failed the test. I think the test was like, who is psychopathic enough that they would buy a book about testing themselves to see if they're a psychopath? Um, I don't know if you've ever wondered, like, am I a psychopath? Um, Okay, just me. I'm all alone. Uh, (laughs) Feels very lonely right now. I'm sure we we all can experience the fact that we've probably met someone or seen someone and been like, uh, I think they might be a psychopath. Um, if you're thinking, yeah, the person next to me, don't say that. That's one of the things we avoid in relationships, right? You keep certain things to yourself. Um, but the book is fascinating, and so um, what he does is he explores uh, what it, what it means to be a psychopath. So. In the field, right? they don't use these terms anymore. It's like narcissistic disorder, uh, uh, um, antisocial disorder. Um, But a psychopath is someone who is unable to make real attachments to other human beings. Uh, And it's primarily characterized by a lack of empathy, an an inability to understand what it's like to be somebody else, um, to feel guilt over hurting them, or remorse over a decision that negatively affects them. And and as we've been going through this series on relationships, I've been increasingly convinced in my own mind that empathy is the key to um, being able to love like Christ calls us to love. Um, that if, if you can't put yourself in another person's shoes, you'll never be able to get past um, judgment. You'll never be able to get past disappointment, or hurt, or anger, or frustration, uh, and into a place where you can love freely uh, without, without contingencies, without conditions. Um, but, but psychopaths are unable to have empathy. Um, and, and it's just fascinating to me. Um, the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath is that sociopaths have similar characteristics, but they're very nervous and, and kind of violent and kind of just out of control. The, the interesting thing about psychopaths is while they lack empathy, I mean, they really can't understand that other people have emotions, um, they're extremely good. In fact, maybe better than people who have empathy at pretending like they have empathy. These are the suave people. These are are the people who like have, know, right, that they're deficient and so they study what does a human being look like when when they're being empathetic? How how do I do those emotions? And 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 most psychopaths are actually very social people. You you'd be surprised, right? They have a lot of friends. They're very charismatic, um, but it's not a, a genuine thing. It's something that they've kind of learned to compensate and usually to manipulate for their own advantage. They they kind of at the end of the day just care about themselves. Um, and so a lot of people you know think that a lot of our big business leaders or political leaders probably have some psychopathic tendencies, um, like. Think of a CEO of a huge multinational corporation. Um, if you had such a sensitive conscience, um, it would probably be a very difficult role to hold, knowing that you have to lay people off and knowing that um, you have to you know, take jobs out of the country and, and you have to do things like that. Um, you kind of have to have the ability to kind of not think about what that makes other people feel like and how that affects people's lives. I think the same may be more so in the political world, right? You've got an agenda, um, and you've got a side, and, and there's just really a lack of empathy um, that's there. And so he starts out with that question, and he goes and he interviews psychiatrists um, and is learning more about them, and they send him off to go meet some psychopaths. And so he goes around the country talking to, to various ones, and it's very interesting. Um, he meets a man who fakes madness. It was a guy who, for political reasons— um, thought that the psychiatry industry overdiagnosed normal human beings. And so he bought the manual that they use to see the symptoms to give you a, a diagnosis. And he studied very carefully what psychopaths uh, present as. And he was like, I'm going to trick them. They're going to put me in a hospital saying so I'm a psychopath. And then I'm going to be like, ha ha, told y'all y'all aren't good at your job. Um, the problem is, he was really good at convincing them that he was mad, that he was a psychopath. And he hadn't thought through very carefully the fact that if someone thinks you're a psychopath, trying to convince them you're normal is just more proof that you're a psychopath. He's still, I think, right now in an asylum. Um, And he's kind of committed his life to trying to get this message out. um, But they refused to release him. Um, he's he's like, look, I, I'm more normal than anybody else in here, uh, and they're like, that's, yeah, that's a symptom of being a psychopath. You're able to kind of present yourself, and he's like, um, like I'm writing books and organizing like political things, and you know, look, I'm well dressed. No one else in here can like barely dress themselves, and they're like again, psychopath. We were right at the beginning, um, and he he makes observation that it's actually easier to convince people you're crazy than it is to convince people that you're sane, um, particularly with, the, with this kind of a, a label on you. Um, he meets a businessman who was known for, made his living off of, made lots of money off of, um, the ability to take over certain roles in a company when they had to lay off people. Um, and, and this was a guy who not only was good at it, but he enjoyed it, and he'll admit to this. He gets a rush from it. He likes doing it the same way people like playing with puppies. You know, I mean, he generally enjoyed, for some reason, going in and being the one who went to the big factories and said, guess what, tomorrow none of you have jobs. Um, And and so he goes and meets with him at his house to try to see what's going on in his mind. And and he walks in, and uh, in the foyer there's a gold statue of the person himself. And he's like, okay, yes, I think that he might actually fall under the definition of psychopath. Um, but the kind of conclusion he comes to is that too often we label people, um, and, and we label them almost in an attempt to convince ourselves that we're sane. And he says, if you really were to go through the, the diagnostic manual that psychiatrists use, um, he said he read through all of it and was surprised that he had 26 disorders. You know, they say, like, if you have four or more of these symptoms, you know, you have anxiety disorder or this or that. And he was like, nope, it was 26. I was very surprised. I thought I was very mentally healthy, but apparently I'm not. Um, And he says, and and really all of us have some psychopathic tendencies. We have instances in our life, uh, seasons in our life where we're very um, lacking in empathy. We're very self-focused. And so he, he kind of tries to get us all to have a little more grace with each other, to recognize that, Um, we all have some kind of insane rough edges, right? And uh, I think about psychopaths um, when I think about relationships, particularly that religious people have. I think, unfortunately, too often the church is a psychopathic institution. And too often, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we create people, we train people, who are spiritually psychopaths, who, who got into the world and are trained to think um, that they're better than other people, because God loves them, because they're part of this group, who are trained to recognize sins and to judge people for them. I mean, think about this, right? The church is most known for being judgmental, for, for focusing on other people's sins, conveniently ignoring our own, right, that we struggle with. Those aren't very serious. It's the ones that y'all are dealing with that are very serious. Um, And uh, kind of my question for us this morning as we wrap up the series is, are we spiritual psychopaths? What areas of our life do we find ourselves lacking empathy? What areas of our life do we find ourselves really just caving in on ourselves? Um, Because as Christians, um, this should not be so. As followers of Jesus, um, we are called to... Die to ourselves, to forget ourselves, and to, in a radically countercultural way, actually care about other people more than we care about ourselves. Not just in addition to caring about ourselves, but to actually be willing to sacrifice our own well being, our own life, for the good of other people, the way that Christ has done for us. Um, and so, throughout the scriptures, we see that, that Christians are called to, to serve other people. We're called to love, and we're called to forgive, and we're called to focus. Um, But we're called to serve, and and serving, blessing somebody else is kind of putting love in action. It's love on the ground floor with some sweat equity. Um, And it's a very, very important part of following Jesus. He teaches about it a lot. I want to point you to a passage very interesting to me. So if you have a scripture, uh, a Bible with you, open up with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, one of my favorite passages you've been here for five years or more, you probably heard me preaching this a couple times, yet yeah, every time I come back to it, it is more profound and more challenging. Um, it's also a very amusing story to me. So we'll pick it up in verse 20, uh, verse 20 in chapter 20, and the context here is Jesus has been predicting his death on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, he's just predicted it for the last and third time. Um, And so the the disciples should know, right, that whatever kind of king this is, it's a kind of a suffering king. It's not your normal king who rules through a sword and sets up um, this uh, government that enforces his reign through violence. Um, And yet they seem not to understand still. So at best, what happens in the scene is very bad timing right after Jesus tells them once more, like, hey, I'm going And it's part of the plan. I'm going to become the king, but I'm going to actually die. And and it's going to be a little confusing for you. And what happens is in verse 20, right after this um, prediction, then we're told, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, which would be James and John, um, the the sons of thunder, they come up to him with her sons, uh, or she came up with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something, Jesus. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your kingdom. The request here is for authority position number one and authority position number two. Um, They truly believe Jesus is the king, is going to set up his kingdom on earth, is going to reign, and they want to get in on the action before it's too late. So there's this gro- close group of 12 that's been following Jesus. Um, and they're like, okay, I think before we get to Jerusalem, we should just secure our cabinet positions, right? Number one and number two. And they do the classic move of, let's get our mama to ask for us, okay? Um, I mean, this is a hallmark of maturity. Uh, I'm surprised they don't really get what Jesus is teaching here. Um, they they um, bring their mom to to ask for them. Um, you know, I've taught high school, it seems familiar to me, um, but, uh, mama comes and says, hey, will you give my, my boys number one and number two? Um, and Jesus responds to them, uh, you don't know what you're asking for. I mean, you, you, you just by the very question itself is proof that you haven't quite really had it sink in the kind of kingdom I'm inaugurating, the kind of king I am, um, he, he asks them a question, do you think you're going to be able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? This cup of suffering. And they say, yeah, we're able. Jesus responds, and he says, well, he will drink it. You, you will drink my cup, and they do. Um, but they don't understand now. And he says, to sit at my right hand and my left, that's not mine to grant, but it's for those whom it has been prepared for by the Father. Um, Jesus says, look, the question's off base. You you really don't understand what's happening. um, And uh, by not understanding, you're not ready to be number one or number two. Um, That's that's not something I'm dishing out right now. Um, It's it's something that comes naturally when you follow in my uh, character. And so when the ten heard it, remember there's a group of twelve following Jesus, the ten hear it, they become, in my Bible it says, indignant at the two brothers. Um, So this is classic first century drama, okay? We think we're the only ones with drama. Um, we're not. So the ten hear it, and they're a little upset, right? Like, hey, we thought we were all in this together, high school musical style, and, and the two of you go behind our backs with your mom and try to undercut us and get positions one and two. Like, what if we? I thought we were all doing a packed, like, equal, 12, you know? Um, a tie for number one. Twelve waves. Um, you know, in my mind, I think Peter organizes this meeting uh, and kind of rouses them up. James and John were part, two of the inner three of Jesus' disciples. Peter's the other one, and we know Peter uh, to be a very rambunctious, very uh, um, speak first, ask for forgiveness later um, kind of person. And and I'm sure Peter is like the most upset. Right? Look, we were. We were in it as a group of three, and the two of y'all, because your brothers went and asked for the position. And so he's rallying up the other nine. How could, could? How dare you? Can you believe that they're doing that? I happen to think if Peter was invited, he would not be as indignant, right? I think he feels hurt that he's left out. Um, this is, I think, a good example for us. Sometimes we long for the good old day when, you know, there were no conflicts, and Christians got along perfectly. And uh, from the very beginning, right before the Holy Spirit's poured out and like an official church begins, there are problems, even between people who follow Jesus. There's disagreements. It's messy. Um, in fact, if you look at some of the first churches, you know, actually most of us are doing pretty well. Uh, in the letter to the first Corinthians. Um, They are engaging in all types of immorality. I can't say some of it. We've got kiddos in the room. Um, But, you know, you could call 1 Corinthians, uh, the church in Corinth, church gone wild, XXX, right? It means bad news. I have not heard of a church doing things like they were doing. So maybe some progress, right? Um, Anytime humans get together, there's going to be conflict. It's going to get messy. We're going to need to forgive and have grace. And it's true even of Christians. And, and I think I've seen one of the saddest things is people will come to a church and, and they'll either be told or they have this expectation that because they're all Christians, there'll never be any conflict. People will never disagree about something. And then when that happens and they see it, they're like, well, this all was a lie, this was a joke. In truth, though, one of the beautiful things about the church is it's a safe place for us to practice loving and forgiving. It's a safe place for us to learn how to handle conflict with the group of people that's committed to loving us, no matter how bad we do it. And with people who have been doing it for much longer than we have, that we can learn from, who can teach us. In my mind, it's kind of like a a safe place to start working out, where you're not going to be judged if you can't do the pull-up right? And you're not going to be shamed, and um, you're going to be encouraged. Instead of, you know, other type of gyms, maybe, where you're like, I really don't want to work out, because everyone's going to look at me and be like, why are you so weak? Like, well, that's why I'm here. I'm trying, but this doesn't feel like a safe place for me to to fail, and to be like, hey, I don't have too much muscle yet. I need to build it. Um, The church is this this great place for that. So they're mad. Um, There's all kinds of of drama happening within the group, and so Jesus— like a good leader, is like, all right, time out, team meeting. I'm going to use this as a teachable moment. So he he calls them to him, and he he tells them this. Um, And these next few sentences are, are so powerful. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. The word over, I think, is so important. He says, you know how the world works. People with the titles, they use their power over other people to get them to do what they want, to get them to do things that will benefit themselves. They use their resources, whether it's a title, power, money, time, skills, to leverage their own benefits. He says, so you know this is the way that it's been running, um, and this is kind of what your question's implying, right? You wanted this power over people. He says, but it." Should not be that way over you. They're great ones. He says, exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. And then he says this whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. This is actually some beautiful poetry. It's a parallel statement here. He says, You want to be great? Be a servant. You want to be first? If you want to be ambitious, you really want number one? Then consider yourself a slave. You know, no rights. You exist solely for the purpose of benefiting other people, for blessing other people. Um, now, we live in a culture and a time where service is seen as a good thing, as a good quality. Even if you're not a Christian, right? Uh, it's telling that even public schools, right, you have to, they tell the kids, you have to serve for a certain amount of hours before you can graduate. You have to learn what it is to volunteer. And colleges will say, we want to accept you if you've not proven to us that you have some kind of interest in, or at least the ability to fake interest in, giving back to the world, giving back to the community. Um, It was not always like that. In the the first century, um, from Greek philosophers of, of past ancient times, servanthood... Serving other people was actually one of the highest, if not the highest, vices. Plato said that there's really nothing worse than serving somebody else. There's nothing more embarrassing than that. How weak of a person are you when you're in a position where you're having to serve other people? The height, right, is not to be serving, but to be served. That's the good life. That's the flourishing life. That's the happy life. That's what we should be seeking. That's the virtue. And so when Jesus says this, this is as countercultural as it gets. Um, the world did not always think serving was a good thing. And volunteering was just a good thing that we shall probably participate in a little bit. It's actually, I think, a testimony um, about the impact that Jesus had on the world. That even in you know, secular society, you still see traces. Right? But, but this, is not, this is not a common thing here. The, our world has been so influenced by the uh, movement Jesus started, his followers, that there's traces of it kind of everywhere, and, and this is one of those situations. He says, if you want to be great, serve. If you want to be first, I mean, completely stop thinking about yourself and, and live solely for the blessing of other people. And then he he ends it with this, Even as the Son of Man himself came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, look look how I'm doing it. This should be your key. You you should imitate me. I've come not so that y'all will grovel at my feet and do my bidding. I didn't need that from you. I've come... To use my power for you. I've come without a, instead of a sword, I've come with a cross. Instead of a title, I've come with a towel to wash your feet. He says, this is how you should be in the world. And In Philippians 2, there's this poem where where Paul says, have the same mind as Christ in serving each other. um, Because Christ, who was God, became a human being. It's an act of humility. And then not only that became a human being, who died the death of a criminal. He was downwardly mobile so that people who didn't deserve it would get life. Would get his life. And he's now been exalted. In that passage in Philippians 2, um, you have a translation uh, error, interesting conversation there. Um, Most translations would say, Jesus, although he was in the form of God, became human. Um, That word although um, it's not very clear um, in, in the Greek that that's what it should mean, and I think an equally compelling and much more satisfying theologically interpretation um, that, that many are now arguing for, it's become more, and more popular, is that that re- should read, Jesus, because he was in the form of God, became a human being. And do you see the switch there? Um, the surprising thing is not that God did something out of character by humbling himself. The surprising thing is that God is humble himself. Right? When, when Jesus is born, the surprising thing is not, that's weird that the God of power would become a baby. The surprising thing is, that's weird that God, in his very own nature, is that loving. He's willing to sacrifice himself for the good of other people who have only done anything but, but hurt him too often I think we we mix up what we should be surprised about. Jesus, not although he was God, because he was God. Because he is love and existed as love from eternity in the Trinity. Because he self-sacrificially loves, he came to save, to serve, not to be served. And this is the call that, that James and John and the disciples get, and this is the call that you and I still have today, to serve other people. I wonder if, you know, we're imitating Christ, what would it look like to put your name there in the place of the title Son of Man? Do you think that some of the relationships you're in, that person, or that group of people would say, yeah, Mike came not to be served, but to serve? Or... Or yeah, that person came into my life not to get anything from me, but to give things for me. That organization wasn't trying to take resources from me, they were trying to bless me. I mean, I I think if we were to, to judge our obedience in this aspect with whether people would say things similar to that, we'd be pretty convicted. I think and and be on the right track. Just imitate me. You need to learn how how to serve. Um, Throughout the scriptures, um, serving is is emphasized as a appropriate reaction um, to to God and to His love for us, um, and is a a vital thing for Christian relationships. Um, Serving is love and action. Um, Serving is um, the actual execution of forgiveness. And love and focus when you bless somebody else. When you say, I have time, or I have resources, money, I have skills, I have networks and connections, and instead of using those things to make sure that I get the most possible in life, I'll use my skills to bless you. I'll use my money to bless you. I'll use my connections to hook you up, instead of being a psychopath. Instead of folding in on myself, instead of just seeing everyone around me as tools to possibly benefit me, I'm going to learn how to serve them. And someone who serves in a relationship finds that that relationship starts to flourish. In fact, I will argue that perhaps nothing is more important to a relationship, particularly a relationship with conflict or tension, than a commitment to bless that other person. You know, there's a theory of civilization um, called the scapegoat theory, or mimetic theory. And the idea here is that how civilization kind of arose, human beings bond, not just by the things they share in common or the things that they like, but particularly by what they agree to dislike. Um, And you can kind of, I think, see this happen all over the place. I see it with high schoolers. Um, I see it even with adults. You get together, you meet someone, you start slowly kind of talking, and then they say, oh, I hate the cults. And you mean to go, all right, my people. I hate the cults too. Let's talk about it. Think about, like, nation-states. I mean, this is the glue that bonds us. What we can agree to dislike, all the way down to cliques in middle school. And in this theory, Jesus comes— to reveal the scapegoat as a false thing. as He becomes the ultimate scapegoat. And when people realize, oh, he's innocent, they abandon that system altogether. And, and, and the wall disappears. Again, think about what Christians are known for. We're known for judging people. We're known for building walls. We're known for, for being holier than thou. We're known for... Um, focusing in on what's bad about other people instead of serving them or blessing them. We're focused on um, looking for ways to exclude them. If, if you're in a relationship and, and, and a wall exists relationally between you and the other person or you and a group of people, there's this the emotional relational wall, let me tell you this. There's no better way to break that wall or to turn that wall into a bridge and to serve, and to bless that person. It reminds me of the Berlin Wall. Right? East Germany, Western Germany are separated for some pretty unsavory reasons, and, and at the right time in history, through enough pressure and awareness, they decide this is ludicrous. You should be able to pass. You should be able to go visit the other side. And so in 1989, people start climbing over the wall, they have permission. And they also, in a hauntingly beautiful picture, start chipping away at the wall. Now, it's a common mistake to think that actually the wall was torn down by people. Um, it was just chipped at. Um, and they maybe broke through a couple little holes or places here and there. But in, the 19, in 1990, a year later, the government actually came in with like bulldozers, right? And actually destroyed the wall. But the people, when they caught the vision, said, oh, I have a hammer. It's not a bulldozer. It's not going to knock this whole thing out, but I can chip, and I can chip, and I can chip. And when there's that relational wall, I think every act of servanthood, every act of service is chipping away at whatever's separating you. Let me give you a gift. Let me bless you. Let me prove to you that I care more about you than even myself. And it's hard for that wall to stay up. I mean, you, you'll find that the wall comes down. In the scriptures, there are like three primary groups that we're often called to serve. The first is the body of Christ. We're called to serve one another. In Galatians 5, Paul says that's how love works itself out through service. The maturity, the 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 finality, the um, goal, us, purpose of love is human beings who serve one another, who bless one another instead of being focused on themselves. Jesus, when he meets Paul on the road to Damascus, asks Paul, why have you been hurting me? And Paul goes, look, dude, I haven't touched you. I've been killing Christians. And Jesus goes, no, I so identify with the people who follow me. We're so united that when you kill them, you're killing me. And I've never gotten over how powerful that is. Whatever you're doing to another Christian, you should be prepared to have Jesus ask you, why would you talk to me like that? Why would you tear me down like that? Why would you ignore me like that or use me like that? So we're called to serve our brothers and sisters. We're we're called to serve also the poor and oppressed. It's a big theme throughout scriptures, which is kind of a truism, right? We're called to to give to those who are most needy, who have the most needs, who are lacking the most resources. We're called to intentionally, with all our effort, bless them. And then, of course, we're called to to serve the world, our neighbors. Just like we're called to love everyone, that love places us out in service to everyone. But it's hard to be a servant. It's more hard to be a slave. And it's hard to do it consistently. And I I think I've identified some obstacles and some things um, that you'll need if you want to be a servant. Three things. Um, First, I think you'll need to daily or, or regularly be filled up by God's love. Be regularly reminded that Jesus came not to be served but to serve and that he serves you. Even now at the Father's right hand, in the ultimate position of power, he doesn't sit there so he can be benefited. He sits there, stands there, does does what? He prays for you and I. He takes care of us. He looks after our interests and our needs. This is who he is. Now, when, when you approach, when you go into a relationship with a broken or an empty or a hungry heart that hasn't been served and blessed by Christ, who blesses and serves us the most, then inevitably, I think, you'll end up damaging that relationship because you'll look to take and to suck because you're hungry. You're not full but if you go into a relationship and you bring a heart that's overflowing with God's love for you, with the way he serves you, then then you'll be able to give some of it away. You don't have to hoard it, right? It's already falling out of your bucket. You give it, you give it, you give it. And just like love and forgiveness, until we start with God's love for us and how God forgives us... Um, We're not going to be able, I think, to consistently do it in the way Scripture asks us to. Same with serving, until we understand and and continually remind ourselves of the way we have been served and blessed, of the way Christ used who he was and the resources available to him to not bless himself, but to come and serve you and I. To the extent that that fills us up and focuses us, I think will be the extent that we're able to serve and bless other people. I think we also need to learn to look past the sin and look at the person. To look past an action that has hurt you or offended you or that you disagree with and look at the individual behind that. Now, I've got to say, we might have to be fighting ourselves here. I think a lot of times the church accidentally teaches us to focus on the sin. Now, again, never the sins we struggle with. That would be uncomfortable. But the sins we don't struggle with, we demonize those people. We exclude those people. We divide ourselves from those people. And when you do that, when all you can focus on is that they're doing this and you disagree with it, they're doing this sin, you'll never be able to come to a place of empathy that will lead you to be able to love and forgive and serve. You know, I was at a small group Friday night. Again, just had such a refreshing time. Um, and, and one of the things we talked about was this idea that the people in your life who hurt you say mean things to you, tear you down, are usually the people who have been the most hurt. There's there's a saying, hurt people, hurt people. I don't think there's ever been a human being who walked out of their house completely happy and satisfied and found someone to lash out at. No, it's when I don't feel very loved at all. Or when, when every time I've opened myself up to somebody, they've use that to hurt me, that I'm going to push you away, that I won't ever put myself in that position with you, that I'll lash out at you. But what would happen if we realized that everyone's got a story, right? That that, that, that person behaving that way is more than the, the total sum of just their actions in that moment. We find regularly, when you actually hear someone's story— all of a sudden you have a lot more empathy and grace for them. You're like, I thought you were just a jerk. I didn't know that both your parents just died. And, and you can't pay for either funeral. And you're working two jobs to try to provide for your kid. And so, yeah, when we talk, you're tired and frustrated and, and you kind of don't have much else in the tank for other people. You don't even have enough for you. All of a sudden, you've gone from from that division to empathy, into a place where you can now take a step to say, "What could I do to help?" If you just remain frustrated with them at the stage one, wow, you're a huge jerk. You'll never get to that place. You know, it's interesting being a pastor. Just because of the title, for good or for bad, people inherently trust you. Um, and so they'll reveal things about their life that you normally only reveal to someone who's like pretty close to you. So I'll, it'll be like 15 seconds into meeting somebody, and they'll be like pouring out some very intimate, deep, dark things, you know. Because they just assume, you know, it's a pastor. I can trust this person. I hope it's a good assumption. And what amazes me is everyone in this room, everyone you're going to meet today or encounter today, has a very complex story. Has, Has very logical reasons for why they react in certain ways. Because of what happened to them as children. Because of what's happening to them now. And the same way that you want grace extended to you, Right, you want people to give you a little bit of grace because I have to deal with this and this and this, right? Yeah, if life was perfect, I would be a jerk for saying that to you. But guess what? I'm going through all of these things. All things considered, I probably should have been meaner to you. Uh, so you should thank me for holding back. Right? We all want people to give us grace to realize there might be something else going on here. You know, I might I might get up one Sunday and. Look like I've haven't slept in two weeks and, and preach a sermon that sounds like it wasn't written, wasn't prepared. And and, and and people can go, Wow, just lazy, bad pastor. Doesn't care about anything. And then you might hear oh he had he had a seizure while driving and wrecked his car and you know, he just wanted to be here. And you might have a little grace. You know, the attitude changes a little bit. And let me tell you this. For everybody who hurts you, for every person you're in conflict with, down to the most evil person, there's something there like that. In fact, I think this is why Jesus tells us to love our enemies. They probably need it the most. And the people who are lashing out at everybody around them are the people who most need someone to love them to bless them. But to do so, you've got to be willing to get hit, right? I mean, it's this baseball bat that's going in circles. And to get close enough to them to bless them, you're going to, to take a couple hits. That's why you have to be full. That's why you have to know Jesus took a couple hits. And we're following him. We're imitating him. you got to look past the, the sin. And look at the person. And that empathy creates a place where then, three, you can act. You can actually put into action a service. You can leverage something that you have for the good of somebody else. Too often we we look at what we have or what's available to us. We look at the people around us and, and they're simply chess pieces. We see people in terms of what they can provide for me. And if someone can't provide very much for me, you know, I won't spend very much time with them. I won't show them a lot of affection. And we don't realize that's called being a psychopath. You caved in on yourself. And instead of thinking about anyone else's possible needs and ways that you might help them, you're incapable. You're so focused on yourself instead of Jesus, um, that you're not able to to act. Um, You're not able to bless. You're not able to love. You're not able to encourage. You're not able to forgive. You're not able to pray for. You're not able to give a gift to. What would happen if, if the people who hurt you and offended you the most were the people that you gave the most gifts to instead of the nicest things to? At the very least, they'd be very frustrated. I mean, when Paul talks about loving your enemies. He takes a different approach than than Jesus. Same command. Jesus says, do it because that's what God's like. He loves his enemies. Paul says, do it because it's going to be like keeping coals on their head. It's going to make them miserable. More of the revenge aspect, okay. But same, same action on the ground. I mean, that's a very frustrating thing to only spit hatred at somebody and have them just relentlessly come at you with love. Like what? like, no, stop, you're not getting this. And it's a very transformative thing. It might be the only thing that can break through to that person, that relationship. I'll end with this. The call to serve, that's kind of the highlight, I think, of, of our call to, to faithfully be in relationships with other people. It's not a call from Jesus for us to lose life, for us to miss out on, on things we otherwise could have had. If this is truly how Jesus is, if God himself is a serving God and we're made in his image, then we ought to expect to find that the more we serve, the more our life flourishes. The more human we are. The more satisfied we are. And in fact, what's interesting in, in you know, being able to be in our, our era of um modernity, post-modernity, is, is with the scientific medical revolution underway. Um, science increasingly confirms what the Bible has said for millions of years. Millions of years. 2,000 years. Um, I went to school. <laughs> so with serving, with volunteering, let me just throw three things that fascinate me out there. Um, they do these tests. This is a very well-known one. It's been replicated over and over and over again. They give people a $100 bill and say, you can either give this to somebody else or use it on yourself. And then it's a blind test. The, the The testers who are doing the brain scan don't know what they did with the money. And they can predict with like 99% accuracy who gave away the money and who didn't. Because when you give away the money the part of your brain that processes pleasure starts to glow on a scan. It lights up like a Christmas tree. There's all this activity there. In fact, more so than someone who uses heroin. It's more pleasurable. It's more rewarding. It's more enforcing. This is why when, when you see someone who's served for a long time, it's not because they did it once and were like, that was miserable. I guess I'll do that again. It's because they're hooked on it. It's because they can't imagine life spent for themselves now. How miserable would that be? They studied a a, a group of women over 30 years. And they hypothesized that the, the women with the most children, because of having more stress and more responsibilities, would be more prone to sickness, more prone to death. What they found was the exact opposite the woman who spent more of their time taking care of somebody else, whether that was their kid or volunteering, was 52% less likely to have an illness. Because physiologically, when you serve someone, your stress physiologically goes away. The cortisol levels lower, which means your immune system bounces up. You're not in fight or flight anymore. You're in rest and, and, and restore. And then... The most fascinating to me, and you, you had to listen to this one, um, this now has been replicated in peer-reviewed medical journals. Um, they, they look at people who um, volunteer and serve and look at people who don't, and they have concluded that um, those who volunteer are, have, have a 44% reduction in the chance that they'll die early over those that don't. Now, to put that in perspective, that's a bigger difference than exercising four times a week your whole life. That blows my mind. If you exercise, or like me, know you should exercise, you're aware, right, that if you were to like commit to good exercise four times a week, you would probably be a pretty healthy person. But if you had to choose between those two options and you wanted to live the longest, your doctor will say, volunteer. And that's gonna keep you alive longer. And maybe do both in in like compound effect, right? You don't have to choose one or the other, but but if you had to choose, I mean this is this is how much we're wired to live this way. Down to our, our 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 neurotransmitters in our brain. Our hormone, hormone levels. We're called to, to reject the tendency to be spiritual psychopaths. Because if we admit it, right, that's not just something that applies to a handful of super evil people. We all have the ability to be narcissistic, to focus on ourselves, and to use other people for our benefit. But what we'll find is our relationships will flourish and will flourish. If we can learn to serve, learn to serve without condition, without contingencies, learn to put love into action. And we'll we'll see and experience things that are not possible to see or experience otherwise. We pray with me. Father, I thank you for this morning to be in the scriptures together. I, I thank you for um Thank you for the fact that the commands you give, even, even at face value, though, they might seem hard or, or a little bit life-taking, um, are actually, not always, consistently, commands that give us more life. Commands that bring us closer to you, closer to what it means to be a human being, to experience your love, to thrive in this world. And so I pray, I ask that you would help me love more, and forgive more, and serve more. And I pray that you would create us more and more into a people who love and forgive and serve. And that as our relationships flourish because of that, you would receive praise. You would be more known as the God who loves, and the God who forgives, and the God who serves. We love you. We want to know you more. We want to be closer to you. And it's in in your son's name, and all the power and authority that has that we pray. Amen.